Hey everyone, this is George A. Wood, and you are listening to New Numa Godcast with my man Norman, where he brings it raw and real. Check him out here. He's always got the next best conversation going on, but he has it raw and real for you here. Check him out. What's good, family? We know you're enjoying today's episode of New Numa Godcast with none other than Norman Brown, the professor. But we had to interrupt briefly to tell you about Norman's latest book. Recently, with all that's been happening with the pandemic, many have had questions. And in May 2020, Norman was hospitalized for nine days with COVID-19. When he came out of the hospital, he came out with a powerful testimony of how God saved him from death and his inspiration to write his newest book, Covert COVID-19, An Attack on Kingdom Agendas. Now, in this book, he shares his personal story of how he was attacked by the spirit that causes this virus as he declared war while he was writing this book, but he overcame it through faith, prayer, and fasting. In the book, he shares the revelation that God gave him about how this virus affected and exposed certain things about the church at large, which are necessary for believers to understand what's going on and this new thing God is doing in the earth. His book is available for download today on Amazon, so get your copy today. What's good, New Numa fam? I'm your host, Norm the Professor, a.k.a. Norman Brown. Welcome to the podcast where you come to get the real from a biblical perspective. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, I'd like to personally welcome you and want to let you know a little about what you may expect. I attack the raw issues affecting the church and the world at large today, giving you biblical backup for everything I say. Basically, this podcast gets in your face with issues that are trending, taboo, and tough to talk about, which today's watered-down churches don't even touch. I also interview Christians of all types of backgrounds, careers, ministries, and more to put on record their stories of redemption, salvation, and victory to inspire you to walk out your kingdom purpose to expand the kingdom of God in the earth. If you want the truth, this is definitely a podcast you want to hear. So get your spiritual ears ready to hear what the Lord is saying to the church. Peace. And... Um, really just, you know, her heart was in the same place for, you know, for the poor, for the margins and, um, same age. I'm a little bit roughly older. She had a child about the same age as mine and just, um, both with a heart for Jesus and community living, um, you know, and, and living in the inner city and all these things that most people don't sign up for. It's really hard on a resume for a future wife. Would you like to live in community while living at the poverty line in an area of town that everybody else is trying to move out of? Check yes or no. It doesn't work that way. Again. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> So yeah, that has to be a, that has to be a definitely um shape molded cookie cutter whatever person to be able to fit right into that box. <laughs> yeah, our uh-huh. lifestyle's pretty hardcore, man. It's uh 
most people would, you know, I don't think it, I don't think we're anything special because we're not, but it, just the lifestyle itself, most people flinch at. They're, they're like, you live where? With who? And you do this why? It's, that's common questions. So, yeah, that's sort of how that all rolled out. I think a big, a big part of the story, I don't want to leave out or play down because it's a huge part of who I am and what I do was when I was building out that building for the organization, um, that's when my sister um, died from a drug overdose. And um, obviously, at this point, I'd been sober a few years. I was helping people. And then my sister dies, and I felt like, man, I couldn't even help my own sister. So that's when I had the idea to start the Timothy Initiative because I felt like I really messed up without helping my sister. And this was a way to get back and try to help more people officially. And um, it was right about when the Timothy Initiative was about to, you know, launch, and it was seven months after my sister died and my brother died from a drug overdose. And so, you know, it was really trial by fire where like, wow, everything's either working against me or showing me that it's time to do this. It was one or the other because having my sister and my brother die from drug overdoses seven months apart. um, And yet I'm trying to start an organization that helps people with addiction. It's not necessarily a real vote of confidence for the people you're trying to help. Um, but you know, I had some great people in my life that were like, don't look at it that way. The way you have to look at it is these experiences show that you understand this better than anybody. And I I chose the latter. So that became foundational. Uh, one of those foundational moments of my journey was the deaths of my sister and brother back to back like that. Um, that really, you know, pushed me to to do what I've done, which was start the Timothy Initiative. And, you know, it's an amazing organization that works with men coming out of addiction, homelessness, whatever, um, basically just brokenness. And we have four homes. We house about 35 men. And over the last decade, we have proven that we can, on average, our men uh, get to about 3.5 years of sobriety, which is relatively unheard of because usually one out of every 10 makes it a year and 40% of that one that make it make it to two years or more. So it's a pretty dismal statistics when you look at addiction as a whole, but somehow through the way we do things, we've proven our method is able to, um, you know, get people long-term sobriety and life transformation and, and what's ironic is really that our method is Jesus, uh, but it, it's like the authentic Jesus of the of the scriptures that we see, you know, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love, you know, your neighbor as yourself, treating people with dignity, respect, giving them a purpose, giving them a reason to live, giving them a community of people around them to do life with. So all the things that I was missed when I was trying to get sober and whatever, it you know, it kind of became that. And, you know, really just seeing through the power of community, lives changed. You know, we don't even focus on, on sobriety. That's a, That should be a side effect of what you're actually doing. 
And what we're actually doing is giving people lives and, and lives worth living, lives worth staying sober for, which is totally different than just how long, you know, just staying sober or whatever. And all that comes through this journey, man. It all comes through just um, all the different traumas and trials that we've been through um, that help us, you know, to do what it is that we do. And that's sort of where the Timothy Initiative, you know, came from, what it is, what it does. And, you know, though a large part of my journey for the last decade and just over the last few years is when I, I really jumped into the mental health field. All right, so I want to go back to you marrying or meeting your wife, rather. Um, one okay. of the things that you said is kind of like something that I tell people about the field. It's like uh, when Boaz met Ruth and um, they were in the same field. It was his field. She was working in it, and then they got connected. Um, I just want to know, how did you know you would or should marry your wife when you when you met her? This one was uh, maybe a little bit more challenging for people to accept. Um, but it was really, this one was a God thing where I wasn't even sure that I was supposed to, um, but I trusted um, some friends above me that were my spiritual leaders that were really sure that it was from God and, and that we should, you know, we could really be a powerful king, you know, couple for the kingdom of God and our lives could really, you know, transform other people's lives. Um, it wasn't, you know, I love my wife, you know, wife more than anything now, but it wasn't like this romantic sweep you off your feet story. It just wasn't that. It was more like being obedient to God knowing that um, he was doing something in both our lives and we were meant to be together because of him. Um, and, you know, really the people that, you know, the couple that introduced us and put us, you know, helped us, you know, kind of walk through that, you know, phase of our journey, you know, really speaking that over us. My wife likes to joke when she tells people, but he's like, it was sort of like a prearranged marriage. And so my wife has actually began really, she's like, I kind of understand why prearranged marriages can work because you don't go through all this other chaos of trying to figure people out. Just know that's who you're supposed to be with. Now figure it out. It's a lot different than, you know, having the world to choose from which person you like the best. Anyway, so it was really, uh, you know, sort of this prearranged marriage where we trusted the people that were in our lives and, uh, we kind of went our own, through our own journey, but it was uh, unique um, compared to most. Oh, wow, man. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you know, I, I have uh, – my story is a little crazy on that, too. Um, I met my wife on a dating app, and um, <laughs> it was – and it was a dating app that, in some, in many people's minds, it doesn't have a good, um, a good, uh, what's the word, reputation. But I tell you people all the time, Tinder, yes. <laughs> you did? No way, dude. Okay, you just beat me out by, by tenfold. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what's funny is that you know I tell people all the time when they ask about these dating apps, I say, listen, man. It doesn't matter if you met a woman in person or online 
or or through some kind of a chance encounter, so to speak, there's always a, 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 a there's always a chance that the intentions of the person is not right. So sure. it's it's not a, it's not about the intention, or it's not about rather the method, or about the the uh, app or the the website or whatever it is how they met. It's about your intentions when you meet. Because if I if I'm on ChristianMingle.com and all of my intentions are I just want to have sex with women, then it doesn't matter if I met them on Christian Mingle or not. My intentions were right. always bad. You know, so yeah. my thing is, you know, it's not the, the app that's the problem. It's the people and it's their yeah. intentions when they're using the app. And right. so that was, that's the way I looked at it from the beginning. And that's why I ignored people when they were talking about, you know, th- different things about it or whatever. So, um, I got you. but yeah, I met my wife on Tinder and, um, it was a very, uh, very interesting um, situation because, I mean, it's not like it was the easiest decision to make um, because as far as, like, deciding to pursue her because she was living in a whole different country. And right. that was a lot of faith just to believe that me pursuing her would end in marriage and that she would be the one for me in that right. sense. And so, yeah. um, so it was a, it was definitely a walk of faith with that and uh we're still actually in process of her getting to america um and prayerfully it'll, it'll be very short and um it won't be too much longer but yeah so i i definitely understand the uh the way that you and your wife met and um so yeah i mean i think that's amazing though um that you had that kind of you know, situation come together like that. So I want to know, I know that um, um, you said some things that I'm going to ask a question, and I'm, I'm going to ask it this way because the the question I really want to ask you, I just want to see if it will be addressed through what I'm about to ask you because I don't want to ask it directly. And I you'll know why later depending on how you answer it. So. Okay. Um, That's a lot of pressure, man. <laughs> I know. I just want to know what other um, amazing things has God restored in your life that that you could say, wow, like this was something I never thought was going to happen, but look at what God did. <laughs> well, you know, um, it's interesting. We say well, the, you're saying restored. It's sort of like, uh, meaning it was once there where that would really be incorrect because, um, he didn't restore it. He's, he's given it as a gift where, um, because before him, I didn't really have anything. There wasn't anything to restore there. There's no restoration process. There's just, uh, restoration of me as a man, as my identity. Um, but then everything else has just been this amazing gift of, I can't believe this is happening. So, uh, I've just wrote a book, which, um, I can't believe that happened. And I can't believe the way that, um, it's, it's being rolled out, the publisher that's picked it up, 
um, the way that they're making this into such a, like they're really going to push this book. The people we've had endorse the book already, Bill Johnson from like, you know, Reading, Bill Johnson endorsed a book by George A. Wood. Come on now, man. That's God. Um, yeah. You know, the guitar, the guitar player from the band Korn is, you know, I mean, I just, last weekend I flew up and spent the weekend with Lacey Sturm from Flyleaf and her husband, Josh, that, you know, plays guitar for Shinedown. It's like, these are like crazy things in a little world of mine where I can't believe this is happening. And every day I got to sort of pinch myself from, from that to the, amazing people of, you know, that he's put in my life as a board of directors that, you know, are like serious, like professionals worth a lot of money that want to trust me with things. And just that trust that has been given and, you know, the, the people that come to me that, man, if anybody saw me when I was down on my luck, it's like, you guys are coming to me and trusting me with your lives. This is just, it's just crazy. So, you know, all the way from everything with my son to watching him play football in college and playing such a big part in getting in there to um, to my marriage, being a marriage that people look to as an example, to um, the organizations that I've started. I started another organization, the Silver Truth Project, a couple of years ago that is a, works as an advocate and education for people around mental health addiction and and suicide prevention and um just just opportunities that i've that i've had that the restoration if that's what you want to call it of a life has been you know really beyond um anything that i would have ever thought possible so far beyond anything that i deserve and so far beyond anything that um, I ever even conceived of being a possibility. I could go on and on because every day of my life is a gift. It really is. Well, I would definitely say so. Um, I mean, really, we could say that about anybody on this planet. If they don't understand that their life is a gift to them, um, to be able to either impact other people and or to have the opportunity to get in right relationship with Jesus, that's mm-hmm. that's a gift. Um, yeah. But I, I definitely see that um, you have an extra special reason for saying that. And um, it's powerful how of all your siblings, like, I mean, I know you said there's really hardly anybody left. I mean, are any of your siblings alive? So there was five of us and um, two were left, so three of have passed away two by drug overdose one by you know accident on a job site so all tragic deaths and uh far too young you know far too young so my sister my my older sister now she's amazing she's actually lives in upstate new york with her and she has four amazing kids and she lives just just this great life and uh you know totally different than the rest of us Totally different. Well, so is she a Christian also or no? No, she's more agnostic um, than anything. So, you know, the whole, like, you know, spiritual but yet not spiritual in the way that we are. Okay. Um, So 
uh, I know that there are some things that um, I know that there are some things that obviously you have seen with um, this is now I want to go pick back up on the racial stuff that you you had mentioned in the um, you know earlier. I want to know, like, from your perspective, um, what is it that you've seen? What are some of the major reasons that you see that there is so much uh, tension between people who are considered the minority versus um, with those that are um, of Caucasian background? specifically, uh, what do you feel like are some of the major dividing points that have caused such friction and such tension and division between them? So you, as, as a, you know, man of color, you know that's a very loaded question for a white man like me to answer. Um, to even well, let me, speak let, in- me say, let, me, let me say this, first of all. Because um, I don't know if uh, – I know when we had our first conversation, I don't know if we really got into this at all. But I just want you to know, first of all, that my podcast is meant to um, – one of the major things that my podcast does is addresses um, ethnic stuff to bring res- reconciliation. And, yes, we will get into – we get into the tough things, tough topics, and uh we get real and um sure. however however that is for uh-huh. the individual that's what i want them to address and right. it's no it's it's no kind of um i'm not when i ask a question like this this is not like to um make somebody um stumble on something and make themselves look bad or stupid or whatever no no asking, I, I i know that I, I realize yeah. that. I mean, um, I'm, I'm acknowledging it, okay? So yeah. one thing I've learned is um, a lot of time Caucasian people don't want to acknowledge the fact that even from their position, it is coming from a position of privilege, and it's coming from a position of um, not experiencing the same thing that a person of color has experienced. So to acknowledge that before I speak on anything is to make sure that anybody listening knows that I am fully aware of that. I'm fully aware of even as, uh, you know, you guy with a record and who's been cast aside from society multiple times, I'm still a white man in America and that sits with a privilege that people of color don't have. And I'm fully aware of that. Um, so I don't, I don't answer this lightly. Um, and the truth is, it's a very, it's a, it's, that's a comprehensive question. We could have, we've been on, we've been on this call now for an hour and 45 minutes and we could have spent the whole hour and 45 minutes on this one question. And you know that. Um, so I don't want to make, I don't, maybe for another podcast, we can really dig deep, but I will say this. Yeah, we're going to do that. We'll do that. Yeah. Um, I will say this. I think that a big part of this, of the problem, obviously, I mean, you, you got to look at, you know, we look at all the factors that go into it from 
um, lack of awareness on, uh, you know, a Caucasian uh, person's, you know, experience level where they don't even know some of the things that are happening. And so, yeah, you know, you got geographic issues where I was explaining this to a friend the other day where you go to certain areas in, you know, my wife and I went to Colorado recently. And let's just say that, you know, the church we were at was 90% white and the beliefs that they had were very, um, very white centric, very, um, you know, what's, I'm trying to not get myself in trouble here, but, uh, very, you know, they don't, let's just say that I'm trying to pick out a say this because I'm totally going to put my foot in my mouth, but just very, um, the standard stereotypical, what you think of when you think of, um, white America where, you know, pro-American, you know, pro-Trump, pro-Republican, um, there is no race problem in America type of thing. Okay. Um, but if you look around, there isn't anybody of color in these little towns, or if there is any, there's few. And so my guess is a lot of, you know, people that deny, especially Caucasian people that deny there's a racial problem are probably in areas that in itself, they don't see the types of things that other people in urban areas see. And it's just, you know, not everybody has the bandwidth to comprehend that their view of the world is not the actual view of the world from another's person. And as crazy as that sounds, but some people just don't have it. They don't have the ability to see that what they observe as um, society, wherever they are, is not society everywhere. And and so we end up with people that let's let's face it, you know, we're challenging um nobody likes to believe that they don't know everything, especially the older you get. You know, we you know, we have like M. Scott Peck says in his book The Road Less Traveled, we develop our own map of what we think is going on in the world and we don't want to change that. And so any challenge to that is a challenge to my personhood. And so when, you know, with the last few years and everything that has happened with the racial dynamic from all the way from Ferguson to now, things that have been obviously those of us that are trying to fight this as anti-racist know has been happening all along. And only is it because of social media that now the, the general public is becoming more aware of these types of things. But since it has come to the forefront, um, it challenges a lot of people's personhood. It challenges um, their belief systems. And not everybody's ready or willing to learn. Not everybody's ready or willing to believe that maybe they don't know everything that they think they know. And so I, I believe a lot of the conflict in which that we see, you know, apart from, let me just say this, apart from actual formed beliefs. So there are actual people that have spent time and believe, in my opinion, what I would say are incorrect things, you know, that, um, but they would probably say that about me as well. But the, you know, so let's just say it this way. There's actual what you and I would probably call racist beliefs that have been formed after thought and deliberation and somehow they landed on what you and I would call a racist viewpoint. 
But then there's a lot of people that they don't necessarily have not spent that time. They just believe, you know, whatever town or whatever they're living in is the way that it is everywhere. And if they hired um, a, a black person and gave them a raise, then they think that every black person everywhere has been hired and given fair shot to get a job. Um, you know, they, they their, their one black friend is somebody that they, um, you know, they invite over all the time and they don't ever think anything bad about them. So they assume everybody is the same way. There, there's those people that just, don't want to like even conceive that there might be something happening that they don't know. And so I believe that that group of people, why we see the tension that we see is because it's a, it's a challenge to a belief system. Um, and then I, and then of course there's those that realize um, if they are wrong, that they may lose some of their um, given position in life. At least they fear that. It may not be true, or maybe it is, but they somehow fear that um, entering into this dialogue about racism and, and changing the systemic belief systems around it um, is going to mean um, less of an opportunity for them. And so, you know, I think there's, you know, multiple layers to the tension in which we feel. Um as a society, and, you know, it, it's a complex, you know, situation to say the very, very least. Um, that as a, as a, I mean, I guess if you want to sum it up in a Christian belief system, it's, uh, it's sin, of course, but it's, yeah. um, it's, it's a, a, a sort of selfishness, you know, though, you know, that we have for what is ours, and we don't want to lose what is ours. Instead of the life that Jesus said we're to live, you know, our neighbor, love our neighbor as ourselves. There's the Good Samaritan story. There's, there's multiple times that Jesus says that you must lose your life in order to find it. There's multiple times that he calls us to lay down our life. Um, but we don't really want to see that. So we go with the other. I like that. I like that answer. Um, and I will say, we definitely will have another podcast where we talk about that because there's something that's been going on in America over the last four years. I'm not sure if you've heard about it, but there's this talk of people of color not having the right to vote anymore. And there's no, I have not bill. heard that. Yeah, there's a bill that's been on the floor for the last four years, approximately. And it has been about this issue because supposedly somewhere in the uh, Constitution, somewhere, I don't know exactly where, but it's somewhere in the Constitution where there was supposed to be a time limit, so to speak, on people who are not Caucasian um, having the right to vote. A time limit, hmm. not that it would be perpetual, but a time limit. And beyond that point, that they were not supposed to have the right to vote anymore. So there's been a thing that's been before Congress that they have not passed or whatever to stop that from being a real thing. And um, and then there's also this thing going on where people are trying to push for states to have uh, the power, so to speak, which would then allow 
even greater degrees of this type of thing because if you go to certain states, there's still that, like you were, you were talking about, there's still that racial or ethnic tension there that is mm-hmm. based around Caucasians being better than everybody else. Mm-hmm. And therefore, nobody else should have the certain kind of rights and whatnot that they have. So yeah. it just it would just be literally um, we're in a civil war, whether it's guns blazing or not. Mm-hmm. There's a civil war going on, and it's about the rights of people, but it's also about the um, the direction of the country because literally yeah. there's people that are fighting against um, democracy as we know it, which it has um, – democracy obviously has – is pros and cons. But if there was a great pro about democracy is that the people are supposed to be able to determine yeah. what's going to happen in the future and there not be some dictator or some person, uh, autocrat, who thinks that they're mm-hmm. going to tell everybody else what's going to happen. And so yeah. um, that's where, um, that's one of those things that, and we can talk, we can talk about this more, Matter of fact, we need to talk about it more because um, this is something that I'm trying to bring to the attention of any and everybody that has a desire to see equality and also to see the liberation of people from oppression and things of that mm-hmm. nature um, yeah. anywhere in the world, but specifically in America. And um, being that America is the symbol of democracy in the world, that it's almost as if where America goes, the rest of the world goes with their democracy. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. um, it's a very important subject. It's a very important thing to, to address. And um, so, like you said, we'll have to address it in another podcast. I just wanted to get mm-hmm. a brief, which you just did. I wanted to get a brief um, explanation from your perspective of how you're viewing these things and whatnot, because like you said, you also have a unique position being mm-hmm. a Caucasian in the midst of inner city with inner city people and, and those who are disenfranchised and, and marginalized and stuff like that and being able to see the, the things that they face. And so mm-hmm. um, that is, uh, uh, I definitely want us to do another podcast about that, but let's move on. So right now um, I just want you to talk about this new book. If um, a little bit, just not, I know that we're going to do another podcast about the book because you and Brittany are going to be coming on here and we're going to talk about this book and we're going to really get into it on a deeper level. But, um, just give me an overview in a sense of like what birthed this book? Um, what is it basically about and where can, um, when are we going to be able to expect it to be out, um, published so that people can get a hold of it? Yeah, um, which I know, I, I, I believe we sent you a copy because you're going to write an endorsement, hopefully, for us. Um, yes, I did. And, I wrote it already. And I'm not sure, you know, if you actually uh, looked into Chapter 7, but I would, lo- if you didn't, I'd love to get your opinion on it because Chapter 7 of the book talks about race, and we talk about how, I, I talk about how, um in order for people to heal, they have to feel safe. And the Christian church has not been a place where people can feel safe. Regardless of what a person's belief is, Republican or Democrat, and I, and I give examples of how 
from the top systems of uh, authority in this country, we've shown that it's not safe for people of color. And I'm just curious, if you get a chance, go back and look at that and love to hear your feedback on it. But oh, I'll um, definitely book, do that. Yeah, the book itself, so um, four years, you know, three years ago um, this week, it was actually three years ago this week, um, my best friend's son died by suicide. He jumped off the Skyway Bridge here in Tampa. He was like a son to me. Um, it's devastated his father and mother beyond belief, even to this day. Five days before that, one of my closest friends, sister, who was also a very good friend of mine, um, died uh, by suicide. She had hung herself. And so back to back, and, and then over the last five years, multiple leaders and, and friends um, have lost somebody by suicide. I've, I've done multiple funerals or memorials on people of suicide victims. So then my own stories, which I had denied up until like a couple of years ago, not necessarily intentionally, but because they just weren't on my mind. And then God brought me to a point a couple of years ago about suicide. And he's like, this is the part of your story that you haven't been willing to share and you need to. And I um, really recognized that there was just this issue in the church. I've always known that about addiction because that's my thing, but mental health and then this whole suicide thing where I consider myself part of, of, you know, revival culture. I want to see all the beautiful, wonderful miracles happen, but I just know that more often than not, that's not the case. And there's a lot of people that leave feeling not loved or liked by God because they didn't get the healing that the person next to them did. So um, before the pandemic, and it's important to note that because now the pandemic's happened and everybody thinks, you know, I'm on the bandwagon, but it was before the pandemic happened. I knew that God was leading me to write a book. I'd already scheduled the meetings with Britt to, to talk about it. I didn't know her, but, uh, you know, just to tell her my thoughts. And taking what I've learned in the Timothy Initiative and helping men find long-term transformation and the way that we did it, and then recognizing that this is something that could be taught to the whole world. Um, in my prayer time with God, feeling like that's what God shared with me. This is the message you're supposed to take to the world, this message of community, unity, acceptance, hope, love, um, and transformation happens after that. So, um, you know, really feeling that I, you know, after I joined a couple faith leaders coalitions and was working with people from like the Muslim faith and all these different faiths and then doctors and scientists um, to try to bring awareness to addiction in the local, in the local area, um, over the last few years, I learned a lot about how other people view Christian recovery, and it's not good. Um, and so the idea for the book was to really bring together the science community and the Christian community to show that they need to work together in order to truly represent God at his fullest, because God created science, so we need to get, get that through our heads, that nothing is created without God. He is in all things. Okay. So with science and, and, and Christ coming together and then opening our minds to realize that the way we've looked at addiction, mental health and suicide is wrong. And, and it's a similar test like the one we talked about before with 
race. Nobody likes to have their values, their their um, their their viewpoints challenged. And so I wrote the book to challenge the church to recognize it needs to change the way that it walks with people through addiction, mental health, and suicide, that it needs to utilize what God has done in science and utilize the scriptures of Jesus more than just God of the Bible, but recognize that Jesus is calling us to sacrifice, to lay down our lives, to um, to emulate love more than anything, and that that's not what we're doing when we just stay in our little church and, and believe what we believe, that the church needs to um, educate itself and truly, you know, walk out, you know, what we've been called to walk out. And that means an education of all the areas that we need to change what we think. And so the book is really an attempt to really help the church, you know, walk through these things in a new new way with insight. And it's all through the stories of people that I've walked with over the last decade or so. Um, I like to say to people, more people die in the book than live, because that's the reality when you're walking with difficult populations through trauma, through tragedy. Um, we don't get the happy, fuzzy, shiny ending that we all want. Often it's just pain, but but our presence alone brings the presence of the kingdom of God into a place that it otherwise wouldn't be. And, you know, I, I'm really hoping that the book takes off and, and really um, changes lives. And, um, you know, I don't – Britt asked me, she's like, you know, you're probably going to get called a heretic. And I said, you know, that's fine because I'm not talking about things on a hypothetical level. I'm talking about things on a practical level that I live every single day. So if somebody wants to tell me what I'm talking about in the book doesn't work, they can come to Tampa and walk with me, and I'll show them how it does. This isn't something I came up with in a classroom. This is reality. And, you know, hopefully the church sees it that way, and and people can find a new sense of living through it, because I know that, like you asked me before, God has certainly given me a new chance at living. Wow, man. Yeah, that's um, that's really powerful, man. And uh, like I said to Britt, um, that that word, okay, well, in the Bible, when it talks about how Jesus healed someone, the word for healed is more often than not, I mean, it, it, out, it outshines the rest of the words by a long shot that's like, no comparison. But anyway, that word in the Greek is therapeuto. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we get therapy from. And yep. um, th- that speaks to a lot of things that I don't even think up till now that the church has really understood that. The fact of mm-hmm. therapy being how God typically will heal someone. I mean, when you think about it, it's kind of like this. I mean, when you look at your body and how fast your body heals, there's never an overnight healing of your body, no matter what it is. If you cut yourself, it's going to take some time for that to heal, days. 
it takes time for those things to come back together and grow back like they're supposed to be. Um, right. That's not, an, that's not an instantaneous situation. Now, obviously, there are times when there are miracles that Jesus performed, but the, matter, the, 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 the fact of the matter is that a lot of the healing um, that we're seeing that he did was it was a therapeutic healing and mm-hmm. that does not take away from the power of it. That does not take away from the impact of it or whatever. But what it shows is that um, God realizes it's kind of like um, I know to a degree that when it comes to addiction, people say that you need to replace the addiction with something else. And mm-hmm. so there will be a substitute, so to speak, that will take the place of the addiction so that you now have a healthy way to either express something that caused the addiction or or rather that um led to the addiction you have a healthy way to to either express that get it out or or be able to deal with it rather um that was probably the best word to deal with it um the thoughts will come but if there's a, a healthy way to deal with it once the thought comes then that prevents the destructive activities that normally would come and Mm -hmm. so um i believe that with god he knows that when it's certain things in our lives that are things that have been strongholds or things that have been there most of our lives or whatever that he also gives us something to replace the other i mean it's kind of like the story when jesus said um I don't remember the exact way that he said it, but he was talking about when you clean out a house and how you can't just leave it just empty. You have to then fill it with something because otherwise the spirits that were cast out will come back and it'll be seven times worse. Yeah. And so that's the thing that um, we do or that, that you're talking about in a sense of, you know, having a way to, uh, therapeutically replace the bad uh, actions and and what comes afterwards once once the thoughts come to the mind of the person with things that are not destructive but things that are constructive things that are building towards a better future things that are replacing the old with the new with something that's good versus something that's bad and um, yeah I, and the, I actually. I actually take it one step deeper because I, I don't think that there's ever fully healing until we understand what's happened. Now, what you just said is, is correct, but it, I, it, it's lacking in substance as far as what the heck happened in the first place. And until yeah. we understand that, until we understand that a person didn't just wake up one day and want to be a drug addict, a person didn't just wake up one day and want to be suicidal, and a person didn't wake up one day and want to be mentally, you know, mentally ill. Something happened in that person's life. And here's the thing. For years, we thought it's genetics or we thought it's bad decisions or we thought it's all these things. But it's almost always, always linked back to trauma in childhood. It's almost always linked back to the inability to regulate oneself. And so if we want to fully walk out our identities as believers of Jesus, as sons and daughters of the Most High, then we can't even do it just by doing good things. We can only do it 
by knowing who we truly are. And we can only know who we truly are when we go back to the beginning and figure out what happened in my life that led me to this. And if we think about how do we stop future generations, here's the thing. We can't just stop future generations if we only help people that are already addicts or already mentally ill or already struggling. We can only help future generations if we recognize and own our wrongs in how that person became the way they did. That's the only way it can happen. So I take it all the way back, and I try to stress, man, this isn't a, it's not a book about how you get your son sober. That ain't it. Yeah. In fact, if yeah. the person picks it up, what they're probably going to learn is that there's a reason their son's an addict, because of what they did when that kid was a child. Well-intentioned parents and all. Because we don't understand the way that the brain and body, mind, the way that it matures. And our society is so fractured and broken as a whole that we only live, you know, for ourselves, the American dream. And, you know, you look back to ancient cultures, they were very much about the family unit, very much about, you know, love and support. It was just a different a different world. So, yeah, I mean, it's a deep book um, for from a guy like me who's not very deep, but it's a deep book. Wow, that is um, powerful. And, you know, um, definitely I agree with you. Um, and I, I've also said that type of thing. Actually, early in our conversation, I was talking about that, about the things that happen to us when we're children. So I definitely agree with you on that. Um, because I yes. saw it even in my own life. And, um, yeah, man, that's a powerful concept that I know is you're seeing the reality of it in your everyday ministry. Um, yeah. The, the last, I got two more questions that I want to ask. The one question is, how do you live in community and what does that look like when you're talking about, I know that what you're, what you're doing specifically, you have people living in the house with you. So how does that look? Well, it's not just living in the house. Um, and just let me forewarn you, I only have 10 minutes left, so I'll try to keep it keep it in there. Um, we, yeah, living in a house is one thing, but proximity doesn't always mean community. So um, we, I, I live, my personal community is about 14 people, 15 people. And, you know, some live in, like, one lives in the house with me and my wife, but, the rest live like directly next door and, you know, um, across the street and, and we've all kind of gathered there and, and we do life together as far as, you know, eating together a couple nights a week, praying together. Um, but really it's about the authentic nature in which, you know, we walk out our decisions, we walk out our support of one another and our struggles and bring them to the table share them with each other and it's really about being open and transparent and even with our brokenness and even with uh, the things that we'd rather not share and I, I mean for me that's one version of what a community can look like and you know at the heart of what community for all people though is it's it's got to be authentic it's got to be real and it's got to be a willing to sacrifice your own uh, personal right to keep from people things you want to keep from them. 
because if you want to be doing life with each other, you can only do that if you're being open and honest with each other. So it's, it's, it's radical in the sense of, you know, you got to wrap it around values and morals, like, you know, our value of um, serving the poor, of living in a very high crime-ridden area so we can be, be a difference. Um, you know, it's nobody's trying to purchase a bunch of stocks and bonds and make a million dollars. It's more like, you know, let's give everything we have to the poor. Let's give everything we have to the community around us so that we can be like Jesus. So you got to have, you know, you got to have those communities and values in which, you know, um, you know, the community is based on the, the, you know what I mean? And something to work around. So for us, it's like, we know what our, community's values are and the way in which we agree to go about achieving them. All right, man, that sounds good. So when is this book going to be coming out and, um, you know, for um, people to get it? Yeah, yeah, it's coming out uh, spring of next year. And um, we actually have been part of a two-book deal. So we have a second book we're already working on that will come out the following year. Um, that'll be uh, kind of a supplement to the un- the book is called the Uncovery. The the other book is going to be a devotional that goes along with it that helps you to walk out the Uncovery. And yeah, it comes out in the spring. You can get on the uh, pre-order list by emailing me at george at sobertruthproject.org. Um, and you know, listen here for more updates on it because I'm sure you'll let people know when it's coming. Of course, and we'll be doing another interview about it anyway. Um, yeah, man. All right, man. Well, listen, George, it was really good having you on here. Uh, do you have any type of social media that people can follow also? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you can come follow, you know, whatever whatever it is. If it's Facebook, you know, George A. Wood. If it's um, Twitter, it's uh, um, one George A. Wood. And uh, Instagram is just George A. Wood one. So it's kind of, you know, replace the one, one's at the beginning and one at the end. But social media, you can also find us, uh, Sober Truth Project, Um, uh, you know, Sober Truth Project, Twitter, Sober Truth Project, Instagram, it's the same thing. So uh, that's the best way to kind of keep up with where I'm at. All right, man. Well, it was great having you on the show, and I'm looking forward to our next interview where we're going to get into some other stuff um thank you again for being on new new Godcast, man i appreciate you and uh yeah man all i those, appreciate you yes and for all those that are listening right now um just make sure you go and follow him on on ig and twitter and facebook and all those things look him up make sure you keep his book uh written down so you can order that um in advance and and or when it comes out and uh thank you again for for supporting new numa godcast we appreciate you uh we thank you for all that you do make, make sure if you're not already subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform um also if you're on itunes make sure you give us a five-star rating with an inspirational quote um i just want to say to my audience you've been listening to new numa godcast Thank you. Peace. What's up, family? This is Norman. Thanks for listening to New Numa. We appreciate you, and that includes your feedback. What do you like most about the podcast? 
What are your favorite subjects? What types of guests would you like to hear more? Shoot us an email today at new.numa.podcast at gmail.com and let us know your thoughts. Peace.